All right, there is a lot to discuss today. We just got started last week in Matthew chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3. We're going to continue there again this morning with Prepare the Way part 2. And there is much to say. We're going to be all over the Gospels and a little bit in the Revelation and quite a bit in uh, 2 Kings this morning. And so um, we're going to try to move as efficiently as possible. And I'd remind you where we were at last week through chapter 1 and chapter 2. We've said along with the Word of God that the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Not just in any way, but in a very particular way. In a way that included the patriarchs and the monarchs, Canaanite prostitutes and Moabite widows, incest and adultery, kings and Chaldeans, a betrothed virgin pregnant with child and a just man who was unwilling to divorce her at the proclamation of the angel that said, you shall call his name Jesus. Literally, Yahweh is salvation for he will save his people from their sins. Wise men coming from the east, their wisdom not in their title nor even in their doctrine, but instead in the fear of the Lord that when God revealed himself, they were willing to act even in the most dangerous of ways. A troubled king over the coming of Israel's tending shepherd and the words of the prophets fulfilled that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would make the flight to Egypt, that Rachel would be weeping over his children and the return to Nazareth. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, according to the word that was foretold over centuries by the prophets. The ministry of Jesus Christ began in the same way, with the fulfilling of prophecy. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, just like the birth of Christ, the birth of John, which came just a few months earlier, was foretold by the angel Gabriel. It was foretold to Mary when he spoke to her about the coming of Christ. It was foretold to him in the temple. It was foretold by him in the temple to John's father, Zechariah, that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even in the womb. And as a matter of fact, as soon as the two mothers came together, still both with child, it says that John kicked in the womb in the presence of Mary as she was carrying the Christ. He grows into a man very different than his father, not involved with the high temple service that is in Jerusalem, but instead he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now that's something to have on your credential list. Who are you? Well, I'm the son of Zechariah. My name's John. I live out in the wilderness just right before the Jordan enters the Dead Sea. And oh yeah, by the way, I'm also the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You know, you may have heard of it. Isaiah wrote about it. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. This is who John is. 
What's shocking is not that this is who John is. What's shocking is, is according to what Isaiah says, he really shouldn't be. Isaiah 43 says something slightly different. A voice cries. And the pause there is to reflect the punctuation that exists in the Hebrew translation. The punctuation wasn't in the Hebrew, but the words would indicate the way the phrase flows. So we see the punctuation in English because our words aren't that smart. Isaiah wrote, a voice cries. And then here's the quote of what the voice is crying. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for your God. And so, in the New Testament, it says this. Who is John? John is, quote, the voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. But Isaiah says, a voice cries, quote, And here's what he's quoting. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now we spent some time on the nuance there last week. All the words are the same, but the meaning is different. The meaning in Isaiah is this. Isaiah's voice cries to prepare the way of the Lord out in the wilderness. We have no idea where the voice in Isaiah is crying from. But he's crying, and he's saying, out there in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, because apparently he's coming from there. But when it speaks of John, he is the voice in the wilderness crying out. Isaiah cries, go out there and prepare a straight place. John is out there crying for everyone to prepare the way of the Lord. You understand the difference? In Isaiah, the voice seems to be universal, but the place of preparation is very specific. When we get to the New Testament, the cry, the place of the cry is very specific. And the preparation is universal. And that is a profound difference. Now, a lot of scholars don't know what to do with this. And i got to tell you, when, when the Holy Spirit turned on the light bulb for me, I was floored. And it took a lot of searching and digging to find other men who he's turned the light bulb on for. A lot of scholars will chalk this up to a translation error that occurred between the Hebrew Old Testament and the quote in the Greek New Testament. And you know, I think you probably can chalk a couple of little things throughout Scripture It's quoted from the Old Testament as being a translation issue. We certainly have problems with that in the English. I mean, it's, it's difficult. You know, this, this stuff doesn't work, you know, like the proverbial cereal box decoder key. There's not a precise word in Greek to match every single precise word in Hebrew and so forth in English. They have ranges and meaning, all that kind of stuff. There's a little nuanced stuff that you can look at. But guys, this statement is profound. It changes what Scripture says. Scripture said in the Old Testament that there's a voice crying, go out in the wilderness and make a straight place. Scripture says in the New Testament, there's a dude standing out in the wilderness going, all you people make a place straight wherever you're at. 
Now that's a profound change. That changes meaning. And what do we always say here at Mount Zion? The most simplest ex- exegetical you know, approach, the most simple, simple hermeneutic that you can have, the one that we apply all the time is you know, vocabulary and grammar in context convey meaning. And so meaning's what we're after. When we go to Scripture, we're not looking for a cute quote or an inspirational phrase. We're looking for meaning, and the meaning of Scripture just changed from Isaiah to Matthew. What is up with that? So people may want to say, well, this is a translation error, but friends, i got to tell you something. Psalm 19.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, if we have new members class, we talk about the high view of Scripture, that Scripture itself holds, and therefore we here at Mount Zion hold. And we talk about the fact that while translations, ESVs or NIVs for sure, or any translation you got is going to have errors in it because it is the work of men. But the original scriptures and their original languages are the work of God Himself. And they don't have error. The law of the Lord is perfect. And so, what in the world is going on? You know, the first thing that went through my mind is the translation committee on these English Bibles messed it up. Could definitely happen. And those guys, don't, don't hear me wrong, I'm not banging on them. They have a job that I couldn't even begin to wrap my mind around. It takes hundreds of men a decade to, to do one of these. And they're building on the foundations that came for hundreds of years before. So I'm, I'm not banging on them, but I'm just saying, if you're talking that translation error into the English, that could be one thing. But man, it's there in the Greek manuscripts. John's ministry is definitely going to be an interesting one. It will be for us, and it was certainly one for the people that were there at the time. John arrives on the scene like a whirlwind of fire, which is fitting considering what's coming next. I mean, he had quite the ministry. It says that John's dress was so conventional that it was unconventional. Ever known anybody like that? You know, some guy that like still to this day, here we are in, you know, 2023 20, and every now and then you'll run into an old boy and the only thing he wears Monday through Sunday, church, the doctor's office, work, striped Big Smith overalls and a Big Smith conductor's cap. You still see it every now and then. So conventional in your dress, you're now unconventional. That's what John was. It says in Matthew chapter 3 verses 6 through 4. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Now, this is a pretty edgy dude. I mean, we got us a bug eater here, okay? <laughs> locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, I want you to realize where this guy came from. Zechariah, his father, was a priest in a temple in Jerusalem that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
It was the highest known form of substitutionary, sacrificial religion that earth has ever known. And he stood daily in its service. As a matter of fact, he was in its service, burning incense in the temple when Gabriel came and spoke to him. And now you've got John, and he is out here in, it says the wilderness. You know, you understand what this means, right? The wilderness there is not what the wilderness here. It is rocks and salt and sulfur. It's not, people say it's a desert. It's not even a desert. If you've never been to where the Jordan meets the Dead Sea, you, you just can't, I can tell you what it's like, you can't wrap your mind around it. It is surreal. Nothing grows anywhere. It'll be 45 degrees at night and 111 degrees at noon. The Jordan is the only source of water, except for the spring at Engadi. Everything is covered with a fine layer of crystallized salt, and the whole place smells like a rotten egg. You're close to the lowest point on earth. It's just a couple of miles away. The sulfur is seeping up through the ground. This kid that had born, been born to the high priestly service in Jerusalem is out here in the middle of this, this waste, wearing camel's hair with a leather belt wrapped around his waist. He's got sticky honey and little locust bits in his beard. But he speaks with authority. Something they would later say about Christ in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. It continues and says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Now, could you imagine having a, a pastor whose dad had been you know, it's some grand cathedral in, you know, in, in, in the large city around you who moves out to the sticks, goes to dress in this way, looks a lot like, more like he came from the Old Testament than the New Testament. He's out here eating wild honey and locusts and whatever he can get his hands on that will fulfill the law. He's preaching repentance. People are coming in droves to be baptized. And when the important people show up, the first thing he does is call them out in front of everybody degrades them and wants to know who told them to flee what was coming. Not exactly what you expect out of your church house greeters. John spoke with authority. He even denounced kings. In Luke chapter 3, verse 18, it says, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all and had him locked up in prison. So John is proclaiming with authority, and he's not just proclaiming authority to the common man, and he's not just proclaiming authority to those that are important in culture. He is proclaiming with authority to men that can have him locked up, and indeed they do. It will eventually cost him his head. And so with all of this going on, about a day's journey from Jerusalem, out there in the wasteland, people begin to ask, who is this guy? I mean, really, who is he? In Luke chapter 3, 
verses 15 through 17. It says, The people were in expectation. Have you ever been around one of those kind of cultural events where you knew that you were seeing a unique moment in time and it could only last so long and eventually the bubble was going to break? That's where they're at. They're in expectation. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. They're starting to go, okay, guys, look, this deal is not fitting the mold. He's getting way, way too much airtime, so to speak. He is making way too big of a stir. It's a decent drive by motor coach from Jerusalem to, to the area of the Dead Sea. It's a full day's walk. If you were in good shape, I could never make it in a day. And you get down there, there is no place to stay. You're just going to sleep on a salty rock, get up in the morning smelling like rotten eggs, and then have a whole other day's journey back. And they're just coming in droves. They want to know if he might be the Christ. And John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Notice John preached a very, very balanced gospel. A very balanced gospel. You're going to need to come to this guy. You're going to need to come to him because his winnowing fork is in his hand. There is mercy and you need to repent. But friend, you need to repent from something because there is wrath coming forward if you don't. John was constantly asked throughout the gospels, are you the Christ, are you the Christ? He would always answer in this same way. The one who is coming after me is greater than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 19, John records that John flatly denied being the Christ. In verse 1 and 19, or chapter 1 and verse 19, it says that this testimony, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. All four Gospels contain the question of John being asked about whether or not he was the Messiah. And in all four Gospels, he denies that he is. Guys, that's a unique thing in itself. It is not uncommon for the three synoptic Gospels, that is the three that are, that are very similar to each other, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is not uncommon. As a matter of fact, it's, it's most, most common for them to, to tell the same narratives in each one of the books. It is very uncommon for that same narrative to also show up in the Gospel of John, which ought to tell us something of the importance of John the Baptist and his ministry that came before Christ. And so... 
if this guy's doing all this and obviously the spirit is with him and the Lord is doing a work and yet he is denying being the Messiah that is to come, but telling people that the Messiah is coming after him and he indicates in several of the gospels that he's coming soon. As a matter of fact, kind of the chief refrain of his preaching was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which when you get to Christ's first sermon in Matthew here in a couple of months, guess what his theme will be? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who is he? In John chapter 1, verse 21, the narrative continues. They ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? If you're not the Christ, if you're not the prophet, that would be the prophet, the one that Moses said at the end of his ministry that one day the Lord would send that would come in his ministry and be even greater than him. They didn't realize they were asking about the same person when they asked about the prophet and the Messiah. If you're not the Messiah and you're not the prophet and you're not Elijah, then who are you? We have to have an answer to take back to our handlers. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. But the prophet Isaiah didn't say that. That's the rub. And look, John may look like this as a grown man, but I assure you he was not raised like this. John was raised in the setting of the temple. He would have been an extremely well-educated man with all of his education revolving around the law of God of which after Moses they saw Isaiah as the second best thing since sliced bread. He would have known it front and back. He knows what he's saying to them. I think it's one of the reasons you see him so, them so frustrated with not being willing to accept his answers. And so they ask him who he is. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah? No. Now it's pretty straightforward why they would ask about the prophet. It's pretty straightforward why they'd ask about the Messiah. The question is, is why do they ask him if he is Elijah? And if you look through the Gospels, you see this over and over and over. These are the three they ask about. Well, like I said, I mean, if they're looking for this great prophet after Moses, that would be high on your list. If you're looking for the Messiah, that's really high on your list. But Elijah, why? Well, first of all, I think it's fair to say John just looked a lot like Elijah. He just did. I mean, his ministry did. His physical appearance did. You know, Elijah spoke very authoritatively. Elijah denounced kings. Elijah lived out in the wilderness. John even dressed like Elijah. If you've got your thumb there, flip over to 2 Kings chapter 1, and um, verse 1 through 8. Let's see, I tell you guys to be ready so we can move, and here I am in 1 Kings instead of 2. 2 Kings chapter 1, in verses 1 through 8, it says that, after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Just a little historical context. 
And now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria. So let's get our kingdom straight here. This is the northern kingdom of Israel, also called Samaria. This is, you remember, this is thy gods, O Israel, that led you out of Egypt from Amos. This is those people. And Ahaziah, he fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, and he lay sick. And so he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elisha the Tishbite, Arise and go up to meet the messengers of the kingdom of Samaria and say to them, Is is it because there is no God in Israel that you go to inquire of Baal-zebub? the God of Ekron. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed in which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so Elisha went. The messengers returned to the king and said to them, and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us, and he said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, that would be Yahweh, all capital letters, Yahweh don't care what Beelzebub thinks. Thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to acquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed of which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And he said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair, with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it is Elisha the Tishbite. This dude preaches like Elisha, denounces kings like Elisha, lives out in the waste like Elisha, even looks like Elisha. But mainly, I think, the reason they are asking him is because of the powerful nature and the message that is contained in his preaching. So don't just take those as as kind of flattering adjectives about the nature of his preaching. There are two things in his preaching that are bothering them. And one is the message itself. And the message is bold enough. But the power that is in the message that is allowing it to be received in mass by the people. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 3 again, our core text for this morning. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is his core message. This is the message that the Lord has given him. Now, he's going to talk about all sorts of practical application. He's going to tell soldiers what they ought to do. He's going to tell poor people what they ought to do. He's going to tell rich people what they ought to do. But when he's telling them what they ought to do, it's all relating back to this. As a soldier, what should you do in repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand? As a rich man and a powerful man, what should you do in repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand? And for poor people and for athletic people and short people and tall people and for all the people that are coming, this is the message that they are hearing. The kingdom of God is is at hand. It's not just coming someday. It is soon. It is soon. Mark 
chapter 1. I know it says Matthew, sorry. In Mark chapter 1. The, um, I was telling Rocky earlier, it's been one of those weeks, and my, uh, my word processor decided to have an absolute stroke on me this morning. Now, let's, let's go back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Every time you see John preaching, the message and the power is always the same. The message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, And when it gets here, you better be ready for it because his winnowing fork is in his hand. He is going to clear his threshing floor, put the wheat in the barn, and burn the chaff with fire. And of course, when you're hearing this message, the guys that just got called brood of vipers when they walked in the, well, there is no door, when they walked up on the scene, they're figuring they're probably also vipers and chaff. And yet, this is not pressing people away. It's drawing people in. And because of that, with all of these things where prophecies are being fulfilled, they are beginning to wonder if he is not Elisha because of what was written, the very last statement of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4 in verses one through six. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's a short one. So this last book of the Old Testament, man, if you're in Matthew, all you got to do is flip a couple pages to to the left and you will find yourself in Malachi. The very last prophecy of the Old Testament. They're beginning to wonder, is it being fulfilled? And this is what it says. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. Like an oven you would burn chaff in? what's running through their head the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant all the evildoers will be stubble and the day is coming shall set them ablaze says the lord of the host so that it will leave them neither root nor branch but for you who fear my name the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ash under the soles of your feet. And on that day I will act, says the Lord of hosts. You notice the men of God have a tendency to preach a balanced gospel because God preaches a balanced gospel. He says, and then in that day I'm going to act. What are you going to do? Lord, 
Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elisha the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so the very last prophecy that comes out of the Old Testament prophets is about the coming of the day of the Lord and immediately before its coming, a prophet coming on the scene. And that prophet is the return of Elisha. And when Elisha comes, he is going to preach this balanced gospel of repentance for those that are his and damnation for those that are not. And when he comes preaching it, it won't fall on deaf ears. There is power behind it. It will work. It will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers and all of the divisiveness and sectarianism that is present in Israel will melt away into the worship of the one true and only God. You say, well, man, what's Elisha doing, you know, for, uh, for round two? And why, why is he here? Well, Elisha's coming back to die is the reason he's coming back. Because he didn't die the first time. Man, if you've if you've never read Second Kings and First and Second Kings and the, the 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 narratives about Elijah and Elisha, you man, you really need to. There's some fascinating stuff. But Elisha is just one of two guys in Scripture that didn't die and is still not dead. In Second Kings chapter two, verses one through eleven. Um, I'm sorry, not one through eleven. We'll pick up where we left off in verse um, not or. Chapter 2, golly, verse 1 through 11, not chapter 1. In 2 Kings chapter 2, it says, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha says, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. This cat knows what's up. He knows what's coming and he's not going to miss it. Elisha loves Elijah. He loves the Lord and he desires to see his glory. And so they went down to Bethel and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Like I'm trying to to enjoy the moments I have. All the hearts of the prophets are in agreement. Elisha knows his time has come. He's wanting, wanting to get away from Elisha. Elisha knows his time has come, which is why he doesn't want him to get away. And they show up at Bethel, and all the sons of the prophets go out, and you go, you, you know what's going down today, right? He says, I know. And Elisha said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives... And as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho, and the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. And then Elisha said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan, to the same place John is. He sent me to the Jordan, but he said, As the Lord lives 
And as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on, and fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. And as they were both standing by the Jordan, then Elisha took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other till the two men could go over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elisha said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. And yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they sit, as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elisha went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. Only two men in all of Scripture. Only two men in all of Scripture. Elijah and Enoch walked with the Lord and then were caught up into heaven by Him and never saw the grave. And so when you start putting all this stuff together, I mean, the last time anybody saw Elijah, it was right down here at the mouth of the Jordan where it meets the Dead Sea. Here's this dude right down here at the south of the Jordan where it meets the Dead Sea. And he looks just like him. He's dressed just like him. He talks just like him. He preaches just like him. He's preaching preaching with authority. He's rebuking kings. He's preaching about the kingdom of heaven being near, so near you might get caught up into it. And then he's fulfilling Malachi's prophecy, which says what he is is the forerunner of the end of time the day of the Lord and the consummation of the age, that the only thing that's left to come after Him is the Messiah Himself. And He's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You sure you're not Elijah? Well, the New Testament gives us a couple of answers on that. In John chapter 1, verse 25 through 28... What we find is that John is indeed, and I'm maybe letting the spoiler out of the bag here um, because, you know, here we are 2,000 years later. We find out that John the Baptist is not Elijah. In John chapter 1, verse 25 through 28, it says that. Well, we can back up to 24. Now that they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elisha, nor the prophet? Now, they're not making an assumption here. Remember, we read it just earlier when we were talking about that all of the Gospels agree that he always denied being the Christ. John said in chapter 1, verse 19, that this is the testimony of John that when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, what then 
What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And so he gave the answer and they accepted it. John gives a straightforward answer. He doesn't even mess with them. doesn't give some quote. They say, are you Elijah? He says, I'm not. They said, okay, you're not the prophet, you're not the Christ, you're not Elisha. Who are you? He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John's not Elisha. Okay, fair enough. He looked a lot like Elisha, but he's not Elisha. Except for Jesus says in Matthew chapter 17 that John is Elisha. Now what do you do with the word of the Lord is perfect? You know, I mean, if, if your fuse was smoking over the voice of one crying in the wilderness versus voice of one crying in the wilderness, if, if your fuse was smoking over that, this will burn your house down. Because in Matthew chapter 17, in verses 1 through 13, Jesus says this. You gotta have, but you got to have the context here. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, I will send my servant Elisha, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. This all happens before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, as much as it troubled Herod to hear what the wise men had to say, as much as the angels almost scared those shepherds half to death with the glory of God. As much as Herod put out the, the, you know, the troops to, to massacre these children, once the initial shock of these things had passed, then after that, nobody was really that impressed with Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. As a matter of fact, it is said that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Nobody's really that impressed. All that stuff's kind of fallen off the radar. Jesus just looks like a regular dude. There's no great and awesome Lord here, at least not to the naked eye. As a matter of fact, Isaiah himself would write about him and say that there was nothing about him that would cause us to think he was special. There was nothing in his countenance. You know, I don't understand why they always play, you know, they always pick like the best looking dude to play Jesus in the movies. You know, he's always better looking than all the rest of the apostles, you know. He's better looking than anybody else around him. Only guy that's got a white robe on and it's clean. Yeah, right. Roman era, Mideast, and a clean white. You got a white robe on, everybody got a different color robe. You got a white robe on, it's clean. It's hair, you know, Vidal Sassoon, all that kind of stuff, right? Man, Scripture says there was nothing about him that caused him to stand out as a human being. He's not King Saul that's a head higher than everybody else. It's because he condescended his glory. And right here, right here before the end, he sees fit to give a handful of his disciples a glimpse of what's really behind the curtain. And you may look at the ministry of Christ, and, and, I'm, and I'm talking about in his person, and go, well, that's, uh, that's impressive, but I don't know that it, it, it constitutes great and awesome and it's because it's not the great and awesome day that will be his day 
that Malachi was talking about. It's the day that's necessary to get there. And so it says in chapter 17 that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. He lets them see just a taste of what's, what happens if you turn the condescension dial down just a little bit. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elisha talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make us three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elisha. <laughs> Man, you know, Peter's been fishing with this guy for the last three years, arguing with him on a pretty regular basis, right? Telling him, I don't think you really got the quite right take on this, Lord, all that kind of stuff. And the condescension dial gets turned down just a little, and Peter turns into a babbling idiot. They're up on the top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere, and he goes, it's good we're here, dude. There ain't no water, there ain't no food, there ain't no tent, but I'll find something. I'll get you a tent, I'll get Moses a tent. Moses is a spirit, dude. Elisha's for real. Moses is a spirit. He, he won't get rained on. You get rained through? Is it? I don't know how that works, but it's, it's cool. It just blows his mind. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Now they've made this, Peter himself has made this own confession. But saying it intellectually and realizing the weight of glory that you are dealing with is apparently two very different things. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, after that, even Peter won't argue. Right? He just goes, Uh-huh. But they do have some questions because they've been taught in the Scriptures and Jesus Himself has been teaching them now for almost three years. They've seen His glory. They've seen a glimpse of what the great and awesome day of the Lord is going to look like. And they know He's in their presence. And so they ask Him, then why do the scribes say that first Elisha must come? Well, in classic Jesus fashion, he does not answer the question directly. Because the answer of the question directly would be, the scribes say um, that, um, that, that Elisha must first come because the prophet Malachi foretold at the end of the prophets that before the great and awesome day of the Lord, that Elisha must come first. Now, so, to some degree at this point in time, for the common man in Israel, while well, you had these great lawyers that were associated with temple worship, that for the common man in Israel, he was basically, it was kind of like Catholicism was in Europe for a long time. They were basically just taking the words of their scribes and priestly class as gospel. And so they asked, why does the scribes say it? 
The scribes have never even told them, apparently, that it's not because they're saying it, it's because Malachi said it, but Jesus doesn't even answer that question. He just moves to what's important in the moment. And he answered and said, Elisha does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elisha has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Okay. So the Pharisees send a delegation, maybe a committee, you never can tell, down to the waste to speak to John. And they say, are you the Christ? No. Are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah? No. Flat no. Hard no. Okay. John says no. John's not the Elijah. Jesus, after the Mount of Transfiguration, when these guys are obviously, you know, susceptible to influence at this point, says, no, Elisha has come. And they understood, and it's not just their understanding, it's the inspired words of Matthew. They understood that he was speaking about John. Now, the law of the Lord is perfect. But John says he's not Elisha, and Jesus says he is. But there's something that's even a little bit more confusing here. For Jesus says two things in this statement that on the surface would seem to contradict themselves a little. He answers in verse 11, Elisha does come, future tense. He does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elisha has already come, past tense, and they did not recognize him. Okay. Are you Elisha? No. Jesus says, He is Elisha. They did to him whatever they pleased. But Elisha will come. He does come. And when he does, he'll restore all things. And so at this point in time, we got to consider Elisha for a moment. If you take this in human wisdom, maybe sprinkle in a little bit of sci fi. You know, is this guy some kind of like like Doctor Who sort of dimensional jumping time traveling prophet that just pops up at random times throughout, you know, redemptive history to do some particular thing the Lord has him to do and then is out again? And of course the answer to that nonsense is no. You might ask, is the scripture schizophrenic? And I would tell you no, the law of the Lord is perfect. Luke chapter one. In verse 14, we read this last week. This is in Gabriel's word to Zechariah concerning the birth of John. In verse 14, it says that you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit 
and the power of Elisha to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient uh, to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so from the very beginning, it was prophesied by Gabriel that of course he's going to look a lot like Elisha. And the reason that he's going to look a lot like Elijah is because the Spirit of the Lord that is in him is the same Spirit that's going before him, and those and, and the Spirit of the Lord agrees with itself that the way we're going to do this is he's going to go forth both in the Spirit and the power of Elijah. And when he does, he's going to therefore do the things that Elijah does. He is going to prepare a people for the Lord. He's going to make straight paths. He's going to prepare a people for the Lord. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children of the hearts of the children to the fathers. Now that was foretold about him from the beginning. You say, okay, well that's fine, but Jesus says he was Elisha and Elisha is still to come. He did. He did. But even with the words of Christ, it's not the words that have a problem. It's the dusty minds of men. Men just don't have the depth of wisdom. They don't have the, the, the broadness of context. Um, they don't have a large enough perspective to be able to take a single word of the Lord and understand it correctly. Which is why you will always hear me and Mark and Damon and Jim, we have a tendency to harp about context. Man, you've got to put Scripture in context. Not because there's anything wrong with the Word of God. It's because there's something wrong with me and there's something wrong with you. And at the fall of Adam, our, our minds were darkened. And we, we need big context. We need big perspective. We need the Lord to put stuff in its place for us because we don't have the ability to put it in place for ourselves. You know, the example I always use in the hermeneutics class is if you chop the Word of God up small enough, you can make it say anything. This book says, quote, there is no God, unquote. It says it. If you take that by itself, you got some messed up theology, man, because if you put it in context, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now that's a dramatic example. But friends, it's important to know the Word. And I think one of the things this highlights is, if I can get on my soapbox for just a minute, I think one of the things this highlights how important it is in the church today to have just as much of a grasp on the Old Testament as the New. Because it is the context for the New Testament. And somewhere along the way, we decided that all the kids at VBS need, I'm not talking about us, but all the kids at VBS need is just the five-point gospel on your fingers because as long as they've got Jesus, they've got it all. The problem is, if you don't know what the Old Testament says, you don't know who Jesus is. That's the problem. And so, man, I had somebody comment one time um, on, uh, on the online thing. We can download the sermons. They said, man... You really preach a lot of Old Testament. So I thought, man, am I, am I out of balance? And, and I got on there and I looked and I started kind of 
doing it up, and I thought, yeah, man, I am out of balance. We only preach about 35% Old Testament, and it's a little better than 50% of the book. Maybe we ought to start preaching more Old Testament. So people don't like to preach Old Testament. It's hard. It's hard on you. It makes you work and all these things, but but you can't take you can't take parts of a sentence and build your theology off of it. And when you've had Jesus Christ walking with men for three years and teaching them continually about these things over and over and over and over, you can't take a single statement out of the context of that either. It doesn't matter what you're being taught. If you've got, if Rocky's got some guy he's teaching how to build a house and he's been teaching him for five years the way he goes about his business and he's telling him something in a moment that concerns some piece of trim they're doing, you've got some kid that's been here for three days, if all he hears is that, you can guarantee he'll misinterpret what was said. You have to take it all. And so when Jesus says to them, we look at this in a vacuum, we're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and he says, he says, uh, Elijah will come. He will. And he's going to lay it straight. But Elisha has already come. And they rejected him. Man, what do you do with that? What you do with it is the rest of Christ's teachings on John and Elisha. If you look in Matthew chapter 11, in verse 7, now we know this guy has been prophesied to come forth in the spirit and the power of Elisha. And Jesus says he is Elisha, but he didn't accomplish the things that Malachi said Elisha would accomplish. And Jesus says Elisha is coming to accomplish those things. So what do we do? What we do is this. Matthew eleven seven. As they went away... Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? See, because John is none of those. He's not some reed fluttering in the wind. He's a hurricane. He certainly wasn't dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus says, this is him. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elisha who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. If you are willing to accept it, he says, I tell you, all the prophets prophesied up until him. And if you're willing to accept it, sure, he's Elisha. You understand, he's teaching the people here. 
who he has yet to proclaim himself as the Messiah to. He goes, yeah, sure. So if I tell you he is, who do you think that's going to make me telling you I am? And the hour is not yet come, but sure. He's Elisha if you're willing to accept it. He came in the spirit and the power of Elisha in condescension because this was Christ coming in condescension. Christ is coming a second time and it will not be in condescension. It will be the great and awesome day of the Lord. Peter, James, and John saw a glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw just a picture of what is to come and it terrified them. And they're His boys. And so here's Christ condescended to come live among men. To die the propitiation of the sins of men for the glory of His Father. A glory that is the reason his joy was so great in the love of the glory of his father. Spoiler on camp. You should come. That he asked for the cross so that he could return to it. People say, man, can you believe that Jesus loved me enough to go to the cross for me? Let me tell you something, friend. Jesus did love you enough to go to the cross for you. He loved me enough to go to the cross for me. You weren't the highest love on his list. When we see Jesus praying for the cross to come, he was praying for it because he wanted to go back to the Father. And so here you see him in his condescension. And so you can understand why he's being a little condescending. Yeah. That's Elisha if you're willing to accept it. You see, the difference between John and Elisha and Jesus Christ is John and Elisha are only going to die once. They're only going to die once. And what is ordained for both of them, being of the same spirit, is to die in the service of this office as being the forerunner of Christ coming to earth. And so John's going to die doing his job. John's going to die operating in the spirit of Elisha. It's almost like an honorary degree. Yeah, he's Elisha if you'll accept it. He deserves it. He came forth in His Spirit. There's none been greater from the beginning until now other than Him. Lord, are you being a little condescending? A little bit. This is the condescension. He said, this is Him if you'll accept it. They weren't willing to accept it. The very next thing He says, let's let's, let's back up to verse 14. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. 
Jesus is like, man, I am telling you something important. You need to hear because this is the first rodeo, but it's not the last one. And the next one's going to look nothing like this. So he who has ears, let him hear. And then this is Christ's summation of their response. Scripture doesn't record their response, which is good because they probably would have given him lip service and nodded their head. Scripture records Christ's view of their response. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Jesus is saying to them, it doesn't matter what I tell you. I cannot get a response out of you. I play the flute. You want to be happy? You want to dance? Man, I'll preach the Sermon on the Mount and tell you all the glories of the kingdom of heaven. You won't dance. Like stubborn kids run around the marketplace. You'd rather be hoodlums. I played the flute for you. You wouldn't dance. You want to mourn? How about Matthew 24? How about when you see the abomination of desolation, run? Ladies, pray you're not pregnant. Pray it's not winter. You want to mourn? They didn't mourn. They went, "Uh uh-huh. Mildly indifferent. Maybe a little lip service in his favor. Oh, good teacher. Maybe a little, ah, we think you're a demon. But generally speaking, indifferent. This is what Christ is talking about later in his epistles to the churches where he said, man, if you were just hot or just cold, if I could just get an impassioned response out of you, but because you were lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. He says, man, I just laid it out there for you. If you can just accept that this is Elisha, then you will understand and accept that I am the Christ. I know I'm not what you thought he was going to look like because you thought what he was going to look like is round two. But believe me, friends and neighbors, you want round one to come first. I know you think you're special because you're Jews, but the reality is, is on the day that all Israel is saved, there won't be much of Israel left. What Jesus is telling them is this is the age of grace if you will accept it. God has come down to you in condescended form, specifically according to John chapter 1, in order to make an unknowable God known. Because if I had come down to you in who I really was, you would all be dead. If I had come down to you in the fullness of my glory, if I had shown them the fullness of the glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, we would only now have nine disciples. I am a consuming fire and I have come condescending to you with a condescended forerunner in order that this might be the age of grace. Grace. He is Elijah if you will accept it. I am the Ancient of Days. I am the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I am God come in the flesh if you will accept it. And if you won't, what you're going to get is God come in the full power of His glory. 
And what you want is you want to accept it now and not later. Elisha has come if you will accept it. Christ has come, friends, if you will accept it. If you won't, you'll deal with what happens when Elisha and then Christ come back a second time. And if you want to read the narratives on that, the Elisha narrative is in Revelation chapter 11, and the return of the Messiah narrative is in Revelation chapter 19. The word of the law of the Lord is perfect. Humans in their arrogance and in their little dusty minds and their compact contexts have the audacity to look at what the Lord is doing between the interplay of Isaiah and the New Testament Gospels and go, oh, it's a translation error. Don't worry about it. Don't let it rattle your faith. Friend, it's not there to rattle your faith. It's there to inform your faith. I mean, this is the whole point of what the Jews missed. It's crazy to me. These guys always want to talk bad about the Jews. And they go, you know, they just looked at the Old Testament and they sifted out all of the stuff that talked about the suffering servant aspect of the Messiah. And they gathered all of the stuff that talked about the conquering king aspect of the Messiah. And they elevated this one and they ignored that one. Now, this is just a translation error. I'm like, pot, call the kettle black. I think you may be the lid for the pot. For real? Are you not doing exactly the same thing? This isn't, this isn't an error. This is the glory of God on display in Christ Jesus at the height of demonstrating His mercy, a balanced gospel. It's a balanced gospel, and at the height of demonstrating His mercy, you're starting to see His long-suffering draw thin. He says, what do I compare you to? I mean, this is a guy, this is a guy who's just been pleading with, with him for the gospel. If you'll just accept it, it's him. If you'll just accept it, if that's Elijah, then guess who I am? And in, in, in that balance point between mercy and wrath, he looks at him and says, the question really isn't who is John, it's who are you? What do I compare you to? Spoiled brats in the marketplace. It is a human grocery store, after all. Spoiled brats in the marketplace. Doesn't matter what I tell you. I tell you to be happy, you won't be happy with me. I tell you to mourn, you won't mourn with me. This is just round one, round two's coming. Oh, guys, for those of you that know, Elisha did come. And they did with him what they pleased, and he died being the forebearer of me. But Elisha will come. And when he comes, I will come. And in that day, all paths will be laid straight for the coming of the Lord. For at that day, the message will not be the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message will be the kingdom of heaven and its king have arrived.
if you will accept it, he is. Accept it, and in doing so, accept Christ. Let's pray.